You're a business leader. You walk into your office and there's your workforce, your team. They're at their desks working hard. What's the single most important thing you can buy right now that can help those people do their jobs better, raise more revenue, and increase the value of your company? Should you buy a bigger space, better technology? Should you buy a better address, relocate, or go virtual? Or what if you focused your attention on that incredibly valuable employee sitting right in front of you, and you bought her lunch, had a heart-to-heart? What's the value of that purchase? That's today on The Q Factor. Welcome back to The Q Factor. I'm Greg Fisher. My guest today is one of the world's most preeminent thinkers and scholars on the subject of human capital. His name is Ethan Ruin. Ethan is an assistant professor of business administration in the accounting and management unit at Harvard Business School. So by trade, Ethan is an accountant. But 21st century accounting is a far more nuanced and sophisticated field than one may realize. Ethan has just published a major new paper in the Journal of Corporate Finance called The Stock Market Valuation of Human Capital Creation. In it, he dives deep into the actual quantitative value of personnel expenses, and not just salaries and benefits, but all the hyper-granular actions good companies are taking to attract, retain, and reward their people. In today's world, it's not good enough to trust your gut that doing right by your people is the right thing. The key is understanding what to do for your people and how to do it. Here's my conversation with Ethan Ruin. So Ethan, uh, what I'd like to do really is to just start with your origin story. You went to journalism school at Columbia. Maybe that library had an impact on you. Um, you were a crime reporter, so I could see how that might have happened. Um, but then you ended up as an academic focusing on accounting. Like, How did that happen? So I, again, a lot, a lot more dumb luck. I was, um, I had my dream job. I was working as a crime reporter for the New York Daily News in 2007 to 2008, um, it was a job that seemed non-tenable at some point. The number of people in the office was quickly diminishing while the amount of work was increasing. And I w- realized I needed to get out. I actually applied for a job at Columbia University, uh, in part because if you worked there, you could get to go to school for free. Mm-hmm. And so I applied for this job. I got it. I left. My last day at the New York Daily News was the Friday before Lehman Brothers collapsed. Um, so I went from this highly unstable industry to academia, which was wonderfully stable. I applied for a master's of fine arts and fiction because I wanted to write a novel. Um, <laughs> and as a backup, I applied for the MBA just in case. I did not get into the MFA. I ended up doing uh, my MBA and I had just an amazing uh, intro accounting te- professor. He taught me what a balance sheet was. And by the third day of that course, I asked him if you could do a PhD in accounting. Wow. Well, you know, um, you you talk about how uh, journalism and accounting have some connection. I think you refer to accounting as storytelling, um, told by uh, I think this was your quote narrators of varying reliability. <laughs> um, can you break that down for us a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's that similarity to journalism. You know, you're you're getting the story, but you're getting it from people who have incentives to spin it one way or another. And, you know, that's what we teach in our intro financial accounting class here. That's one of the tensions. It's the idea that, you know, managers have leeway in the choices they make and they have incentives to make those choices to make themselves look more favorable, to try to capture reality more accurately. There are all these trade-offs. And so 
understanding what those motivations are can help you as an investor or financial, a consumer of financial statements make better decisions. Um, but you know, when we look at the balance sheet and the income statement, the balance sheet is just a history of the company from day one. And the income statement is telling us what happened this last period, how hard the managers worked. Yet we all put so much emphasis on these, you know, pictures of a point in time, but the, the narrative, the storytelling, I could really relate, you know, so much of academic research that's done with all the proper rigor and the T stats and all the data. But ultimately, we always want to tell a story about why this might be happening. But our biases around the work we did, you know, tell that you could tell that story 13 different ways. Um, so I could really appreciate uh, the way numbers tell a story. Um, and how we have to understand who's telling that story uh, as to how we interpret it. Um, so I, that, when you when I read that quote of yours, it really connected for me. Oh, um, thanks. So, man, you really made it. Now, like you went from Teaneck to professor at Harvard. That's like pretty big time. Um, con- congrats. Paul Volker. Paul Volker is also a Teaneck High School graduate. So <laughs> I'm a distinguished, uh, distinguished company here. Yeah, I wish we had him back right now. Um, well, uh, so reimagining reimagining capitalism. You know, like I think for some people, capitalism is like a dirty word, um, but you know, it's a pretty reasonable system given the alternative choices. Um, what do you mean by reimagining capitalism, and and why does capitalism even need to be reimagined? What's wrong with it? Yeah, so my, my belief is that it's actually in the present tense. I I, I think we are in a in this moment where capitalism is actively being reimagined. And we have, since the 1970s, very much lived in this shareholder primacy world of capitalism. Um, But the origins of that was a response to the existential threat of the time, which was communism. When Friedman wrote his article, it was about economic freedom because economic freedom would lead to political freedom. And political freedom was the most cherished value and the value that was most at stake when we had two warring nuclear powers with different ideologies. Um, The... You know, Soviet Union is no longer our biggest threat. Our biggest threats now are climate change, inequity, the crony capitalism, the corporate capture of the political system. And so the commitments of the corporation are normative. The corporation should do what society needs it to do. And right now we need an effective form of capitalism to come up with solutions to these big problems. And you're right. I mean, capitalism is incredibly effective at coming up with these big solutions. I always, you know, when my students get overly critical, I remind them that, you know, from the day that we shut down Harvard Business School because of the pandemic until the day that we were vaccinated was almost exactly 13 months. And that (laughs) would not have happened without capitalism. You're the co-chair of the Impact Weighted Accounts Project at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that project and its connection to the points we were just making? Yeah, so so it was founded by my very brilliant colleague, George Serafim, and Sir Ronald Cohen, who is the father of private equity in, the, in Europe. Um, and together, we've worked to develop a system to attach dollar values to the non-financial impact that firms have. And the underlying theory there is that capital markets can work to address these big issues. Here, we think of three pillars, employees, customers, and the environment, and how companies impact these three pillars. And so there are, of course, always trade-offs. 
And it's really hard to make those trade-offs when we're not comparing apples and apples, when you're talking about carbon emissions versus pay, you know, gender pay gap, to give you two examples. Right. Um, and two very so, different issues. Yeah, exactly. They're very different issues, but managers have to deal with both. And there are going to be times where they're going to have to sacrifice one for the other. And so a big part of this was giving them the decision-making tools to do that. And so we rely on the state-of-the-art research to ascribe dollar values to different aspects of how products impact customers, how companies impact the environment, how they benefit and harm their employees, and aggregate that up, which allows us to put it into the financial statements. It allows us to make comparisons. And I will say, and you know, when it comes to how that's about reimagining capitalism, it is, again, we are saying within the capitalist framework, but ascribing different priorities to the firm. Um, since we've done this, we've actually now spun the impact-weighted accounts off into its own nonprofit, um, and, which is now working with companies around the world, different organizations to implement this in various ways, including not just within corporations, but um, private equity investors have used it to manage their portfolio companies. Um, and we have some governments actually using it to think about how they award contracts to private to vendors. That must be very rewarding to see that work uh, be utilized and makes influence decisions and what might be good ways, I think. Um, it sounds like it. Uh, you know, of those three pillars, an, an area in my world and the investment world that I focus on a lot, and you and I met at Harvard a couple of months ago, and we were immediately uh, connected with you on this, but this the issue around human capital and people and uh, how the investments in people might actually be a wonderful thing to do uh, because it's a wonderful thing to do, um, but also how it actually might be good for your profits, for the performance of your business. Um, you know, it'd be nice if like people could prove that investing in your people actually helps you to produce better returns. Um, maybe that would incentivize people to do even more of it, um, as opposed to thinking of people as expenses, which as you know, is how it's looked at right now on financial statements. So, um, let's just start for our listeners. Could you, uh, tell us a little about your work in that area, but define human capital for our audience. What is human capital? The short answer, Craig, is I don't really know, but <laughs> let, let me go. Let me let me explain that and defend that because this is my main area of research. I study the measurement and management of human capital, um, and why I you know, jokingly say I don't know is because it is such a vast topic, and human capital means many different things for different organizations. Well, I mean, well, well, by the work for our listeners, uh, um, we you know uh, Ethan just wrote a paper that was published in the Journal of Corporate Finance called The Stock Market Valuation of Human Capital Creation. So I believe he actually knows what human capital is. <laughs> so so I, I, I'm trying to understand it. And so I, I wrote an article for HBR with a colleague, uh, Marcella Escobari, where we basically interviewed executives at a bunch of big companies and asked them what human capital was. And we got different answers for every company. And so if I'm going to sum it up very concisely, human capital is how your employees create value for your organization. Um, and so you know, that could mean you know, people developing code, the tradi more traditional way we think about it, where we are you know, at a tech firm providing patentable information, but it's also you know, bank tellers trying to figure out how to expand the customer base. It, you know, it goes up and down the entire chain. And I think that that's a big part of my goal is 
broadening the definition of what we mean by human capital so we can start to think about how those investments can create value both at the top of the chain and the bottom of the chain. You know, when I think about this, and I, I think your research is really incredible and so on point, and there's so much more to do, which is exciting. But, but um, you know, it, it seems so obvious to me as an entrepreneur, as a business owner myself, and as someone who studies financial markets, it it seems like, okay, sure, you invest in your people, that should produce better results. It's a good thing to do. Like, why would you not do that? But when I go searching through the literature for show me the evidence that, you know, the more I spend on my people, the better I do. And it's not that clear, actually. But then I was talking with you and I saw your research and well, you were, I think, trying to show that a little bit or more than a little bit. Um, and in your paper, you talk about uh, this uh, PE, which is not private equity. It's uh, uh, personnel expenditures. Um, and then you have this other term, which is the uh, personal expenditures future value. Um, so I, if I got this right, it's like the money I spend on my people today and what it's the value of that investment might be in the future. But when I look at income statements of financial companies, those are not investments. They're expenses that are written off, reducing my earnings, making my multiples look bad, and there's no no asset on my balance sheet. Can you unpack that for us? Because your research goes into a lot of detail about this, which I thought was fascinating. Um, well, th thanks so much for all the nice compliments, Craig. I really appreciate your enthusiasm. Oh, I don't, and I don't compliment too many people, actually. So I think <laughs> I really mean it. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I think another way you could ask that question is, why the hell is an accountant <laughs> studying human re, uh, human uh, human capital? And because it really is an accounting problem that we're facing right now. It is the treatment and disclosure of human capital, which in the United States is pretty much non-existent. Um, you know, the financial statements in the or the corporate disclosures in the United States, all we really know is how many employees a company has and a lot of information about how much how the top five executives are paid. We know nothing about how lower level employees are compensated. And so for this project, we focused on the European Union because under IFRS, firms are required to disclose their personnel expense, which includes every dollar spent on employees. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, I saw that. I think the paper was mostly in foreign markets because, yeah, like in the U.S., the data is different, right? Well, you wouldn't have been able to do this in the U.S., I think. Exactly. We, we are. I am relatively optimistic that we are going to start seeing more quantitative disclosures required by the SEC, but we're not there yet. Whereas under IFRS, firms have to disclose their personnel expense. In the United States, the, it, again, it's still treated as an expense, every dollar spent, but it tends to be included in um, cost, cost of goods sold and uh, selling general and administrative expenses. Um, but in the, so in the EU, we are fortunate in that they actually have to report this information. And so the idea for this paper started with, you know, us knowing that part of this is an expense, but part of this is no different than buying a plant. It's an investment in the future of employees. And so we began with the question, can we create a proxy for that component? The component that's not in, for not used to get employees to show up today, but to get employees to invest in the future profits of the firm. Huh. So, well, get us to the conclusion. So uh, in foreign markets or in Europe in this case, because we couldn't look at the US, 
um, to what extent does a company's investment in their people produce better results? Like when you compare companies to one another and some invest more than the others, you probably did it somehow cross-sectionally or by sector, however you did it. Did it work? Did it, is it, this, it, is it, it worked great. So <laughs> what we what we did was, um, and I'll, I'll get a little technical, so bear with Please me. Please do. Um, so we broke firms into portfolios based on these investments and then um, did a, we basically used a Fama French five-factor model. So we're looking at alpha, the alpha that's generated across these portfolios. Um, we found that a long short, uh, long, short investment strategy going long the firms that invest the most and short the firms that invest the least would generate annualized alpha of north of 7%, um, which wow. is great. That's yeah, a I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a great amount. We also, but importantly, we found that other market participants also don't seem to be getting this. This is an ex- explanation for the alpha. We find that the more that companies invest in you know, the future value of employees, the more pessimistic analysts become. So it, again, it suggests that analysts aren't realizing that there is this, you know, or they're not realizing they're not realizing that they're that this component reflects a future investment as opposed to an immediate expense. So you mentioned Fama and French in their factor work, but uh, so I uh, is this so is this a situation where the market is not capturing the firm's variation in human capital creation? Like the market isn't efficient around this metric. It, the market's missing this somehow. Does that, is that seems to be what's happening? Th- that does seem to be what's <laughs> happening. And it's perhaps not surprising given that there is so little information and that, you know, the effort we put into this was tremendous, but it's also requires future information. So we're, we're cheating because we're using historical data and looking at how, you know, the expense today correlates with future profits. So while, while this training strategy could generate a, like pretty decent alpha, it would also require a time machine to ex- execute in the real world. Understood. But the concept to me, when I say it out loud, you, I, you've looked through businesses, looked at their disclosures around the investments they make in their people, compared them to their peers, and those that invested more in their people relative to their peers uh, performed substantially better. Over what time frame did you use? We're using, um, it was the late 90s to 2019. That's a pretty good amount of time. Um, Yeah, I always, again, telling stories, right? It's nice to be able to summarize the data in a way that has a reasonable economic framework. To me, that seems logical. Um, I I am curious, I I wasn't sure exactly um, by reading your paper, but what are the disclosures that, that are in there, like these personnel expenses? Is it like how much I spend on coffee or if I you know, take you out to an outing or have dinner with you. What What's in there? It's, it's it, again, it, it builds on the frustrations because this is the best disclosure we have. Um, but the answer is everything and nothing in that like, <laughs> every, like it uniforms go into there. If the, if the um, company offers childcare on, on site, like that would be, that cost would go into personnel expense, not just the workers, but the benefit that the other workers get for that child care. So it is a huge host of things, but it is just reported in a single summary number. Yeah, I was looking in the US, there's that relatively new human capital disclosure in the 10K. It's like a couple of paragraphs that say, hey, we love our people. We treat our people well. Like there's not that much in there, but I think some people, and I've tried a little bit using text analysis to read some of this and um, have you looked at that at all? And is there anything useful in there, in your opinion? Yeah, I'm actually in the process of revising a paper on this topic. Um, so what we thought, we actually went into 
all of firms, every firm's 10K, every firm's ESG report and examined the quantitative human capital disclosures from 2018 till 2020, or to 2022, I'm sorry. 2020 was when the SEC changed the rule to require firms to disclose more on human capital. So just for some background, the rule is not prescriptive at all. The SEC didn't even define human capital. They said it (laughs) changes by firm. We are just going to say firms have to disclose information about their human capital strategy and risk. it went from 0% of firms talking about human capital in their 10K to 86% overnight. I mean, from wow. 2019, that's, there was zero. That's progress. Yeah. I mean, that that alone is progress. Um, the frustration is that they're all talking about a bunch of different things because, again, it's not very prescriptive. Um, on the quantitative side, where we see the most action is among um, disclosures related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that makes sense along two lines. First, they passed this rule right at the same time that Black Lives Matter was ascendant, that you know the murder of George Floyd had just happened. And so this was very much on the minds of corporations and investors. But it was also a very easy disclosure because companies are already required to report diversity information to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We saw at the same time State Street was put pressuring firms to disclose these EEO1 reports, their diversity reports. And so it was not much effort for these firms to just release another report. Right. Yeah. It seems like, uh, that's, uh, we'll probably start to see, I'm guessing, including yours, uh, more research utilizing that text. Um, but I, I do wonder in the U S particularly, like, why is the information about the people so opaque, you know, like your point earlier, um, sure. We, we have that old metric of the you know, median income of, we know how many employees they have. We know basically total payroll. So you could do some simple math, you know, the median or average comp for employees and you know, the top five or 10 people that work there, but that's about all you have. Uh, if you wanted to know like turnover, how good are they at keeping people there? It's, I know you've done something on that. I'm going to come back to, but it's hard to find that in my opinion. Um, in it, or if you wanted to know more about like, you know, different ranks of employees and how much it's, there's nothing there. Like why, why is that for something that makes so much sense to know more about as an analyst, especially in the economy we live in today, all I want to know about is the people that's everything. Yeah. I, so, um, the, my, again, I don't know. I have never had a real job, Greg. So I like, it's oh, by very the way, easy. Me, me either. It's, <laughs> it's very easy for both of us to be like, why don't managers just disclose more? Um, so, but I will give a plug. So, you know, we are revising this paper right now. And if any of your listeners are corporate managers wrestling with this, it is a question we really, we're preparing a survey. We're actually going to ask corporate managers why we don't see more information because economic theory you know, uh, there's a theory called unraveling, which suggests that if information is financially relevant, it should, we should see the whole market disclose it. We should see the best companies start disclosing. Then everyone will, investors will assume that everybody not disclosing is the worst. So then the medium companies will disclose and the worst companies will disclose. But we are not seeing that. And it is a very good question. I want, I, I would love to know why. And yes, if, if anybody, if there are any managers that are wrestling with this, please reach out to me. I would love to hear your story. Oh, great. Um, I'm with you on that. Um, coming back to the research about investing in people and um, what we'll you know talk about is other, but certainly with regards to people, intangible assets, you know, hard to measure. Um, I remember uh, a common a friend we both have, another professor at Harvard, Boris Groisberg, a very close friend of mine. Um, years ago, maybe 15 years ago, he came and helped me in my business. 
And uh, I remember saying, you know, I, I'm investing all this money in the people who work with me. I'm a small, fast-growing company. I'm investing all this money in the people who work with me, and I'm so frustrated because they leave. You know, three, four years later, they leave. I don't, I don't have control over that, you know? And I tried my best to keep people as long as I could, but, you know, people would come and go. Said I, he said, yeah, well, you know, but what if you don't invest and they stay? <laughs> um, and it really changed my thinking, you know. Um, but I, I guess the one of the reasons they say that uh, investments in your people are not an asset like a sewing machine or a building is because you don't control it. It can leave. It can walk out the door. Um, so there, there. I could see why there's a little conflict there, um, but it's still important. And I, I will say, you know, there, there's the part that can walk out the door, which is the physical human being, and that person is easier to measure the value because you know how much you paid them, you know how much you've invested in training, all of these factors. But the part that stays, which is the culture that has been built with this person is a lot, is you know equally, if not more valuable, but also much harder to measure. Yes. As a, another good friend of ours, uh, Francis Fry, another professor at Harvard, who's a very close friend. I love her work. You should check it out. If you're listening, she's everywhere and worth every minute of whatever you can get of hers. But um, she talks about the crumbs that people leave behind, uh, you know, the the wonderful things that are left behind that stay in the organization. Um, that is an asset that has value, just hard to measure. And the accounting standards don't seem to put numbers to these things. Um, I, regarding these uh, these businesses you studied uh, outside of the U.S. around personal expenditures, do you see any differences around this variable? Like, you know, investing in my people is a good predictor of future returns. Does it work better for you know higher book to market companies like value stocks versus lower book to market companies like growth stocks or maybe the size of businesses, little companies, big companies? Does it work better in certain places? We didn't do a huge amount of analysis around that. This was a preliminary study, um, but you know when we are using the five factor model, we're controlling for all of these factors. Sure, but we're saying that on average, regardless of you know on average, growth firms that invest in their employees outperform growth firms that don't, that kind of thing. Got it. So um, I remember another stat I had seen and spoke with someone about that. We talk about turnover in companies and most of the time you think about turnover as bad. Um, but sometimes when you're in a small cap, fast growing company, um, there's some research that showed turnover is good um, because the people you hired that were your friends and family when you started company gets to 1 billion, 2 billion, 3 billion, they're no longer the people who can take you to the next level. Maybe you have to professionalize the organization. I think that's a PE firms are, you know, known to do that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is like turnover always bad or is it sometimes good? That, that's one of my white whales, Greg. It's, it's something I'm, <laughs> I'm actually actively pursuing as a research question right now, because in my conversations with executives, th that that is their that is their response. Turnover, you know, there is an ideal level of turnover, and I imagine it's measurable and even identifiable at probably as granular as the industry level. But we don't have the data yet, so we can't really study it. That being said, there are you know private data providers who are using publicly available sources to give us fairly accurate measures of turnover that can allow us to explore this. But you know, you're right. I'm, I'm looking at something right now. We're doing a study on um, mobility within firms, and we're, we're finding that firms that promote internally tend to outperform those that hire external managers. But a really important factor for these mobile these promoting firms 
is that they're also they also have higher turnover. So it's you know it's not just enough to develop talent within your organization. It's also about getting rid of the people who don't make the cut. back to employee retention a little bit, um, you know, and maybe thinking about in the U.S. markets, because I think you've also done some recent work on this too, um, turnover. So um, is it straightforward? We were talking about this earlier. You know, is there this, is there a linear relationship, you know, better companies retain their employees and they're more valuable versus companies turnover? And, but more importantly is like, where do you get data on turnover? Like, how do you find it? Um, And is it out there? Yeah. So, I, uh, so I, I uh, assisted with some really smart work from a colleague of mine at CounterPoint Global named Thomas Kamei. They put out a report basically showing exactly what you would expect, that if you build portfolios based on turnover, high turnover firms underperform, low turnover firms outperform. Um, but there's so much more research to be done in this area. As you said, you know, there, there is, you know, all turnover is not good turnover. All turnover is not bad turnover. You want to get rid of your dead weight. There, you know, if if that were the case, then you know, it, it, retention. You just want to keep all your employees, and we know that's not the case. Um, the data are getting better, and actually, I've had conversations with the SEC about this. And when we talk about the fact that you know, so they're actually willing to talk to you. Yes, they. they, 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 they <laughs> that's you know, good. I will say they they have all. I, I do not envy their job. They have to make huge decisions that are going to cost people a lot of money and make people very angry, and they're doing it with no evidence. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, one one of the things that really resonates when I talk to them is the fact that there are data providers out there who can give you very accurate estimates of employee turnover for $200,000 a year. Um, and so it creates this huge inequality in the market because there, there are firms trading on this information at this point. Um, so I- where, where is that, sorry, where are they getting that data from? So, so um, I've been working with an organization called Revelio, right. Revelio Labs, which scrapes LinkedIn and various other public sites to track people over time. Since 2008, they have fairly accurate data on between 300 and 400 million people a year. Um, and so, so yeah, you know, if you are right. technologically savvy enough, you can go out and get this information. Makes sense. Someone posts a new job on LinkedIn. You could see they were there yesterday. They're not there today and aggregate that with some other things. And you'd have a good amount of turnover data. Exactly. And it makes a lot of sense. You're seeing this, you really see the hunger for this from the academic side, because I would say that in the last three years, there are probably close to 20 papers that are relying on Revelio and similar data sets to examine these questions that we've all been wondering for a really long time, but been unable to answer. So that work took the data and turnover across lots of businesses and sort of showed that companies with lower turnover produced better results than companies with higher turnover. And again, do you recall if it did anything different across the size of businesses or sectors? So that was that was another result that was very robust to controlling for industry. Basically, it was an on average effect, whereas, you know, you, you can slice and dice the data any which way and, and it would still hold. Um, but again, you know, and, and so, you know, one of the examples that we I, I like to think about a lot is um, you, uh, Costco versus Sam's Club, where Costco, you know, has is, you know, has this amazing reputation for building people up internally, lots of like high retention, low turnover. Um, and yet they're in the retail space where, you know, it's notorious for super high turnover. Um, but, but again, there's, there's a ton to do in this space. You know, there, there is, you know, 
there, my my hypothesis is that there are ideal measure ideal levels of turnover. They can be measured and identified at fairly granular levels. Yeah, it's great because uh, I think that's new. Uh, that isn't something that we had access to a few years ago. All these new alternative data sources that, you know, I remember, uh, I remember Jack Bogle uh, talking years ago uh, about how we all tortured the hundred years of market data that we had. There was like nothing left to squeeze out. Um, but if he were still with us today and he saw all the new data we have, the text and the things that are popping up, I think he'd also have a blast. I don't think his conclusions about investing would have changed, um, but it probably would have been fun to talk to him about that new, new data to torture. Um, <laughs> but this stuff's going to be really interesting. Um, that turnover data, did it go back for like how many years of data did, did, was that? It, becomes, it starts in 2008 and by 2010, it's very well populated at the company level. Great. Yeah, another eight or nine years from now, we'll have twenty years of data, and that that'll be real, real robust. That's 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 good to hear, and I think going to be important. Um, I think I read in that same research that you contributed and worked on about. Uh, I'm Gen X, by the way. What generation are you? I'm on the cusp. I am uh, between uh, Gen X and the one right after that. Um, the millennial right. is that what I am? Yeah. Are you yeah. a millennial? Wow. Um, well, we all talk about millennials. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting, uh, for some reason, I think they got a bad rap, but I, I actually love millennials. I think it's so cool what they're doing and their insights into the world and their attitudes. But, um, this turnover issue in millennials, uh, they, they were saying that, or that paper, I think commented on this, that the millennials have this sort of different relationship with work where the, the, the labor markets are much more liquid to them. They, you know, stick around two, three years, move on, do something different, change careers, change employers. They're not like sticking around for the gold watch the way other generations did. But that when knowing that they're very comfortable doing that, it's very easy to do that. There's this gig economy, like there's no reason for them to stay unless they have some information about what's good about staying. So there's something about if people don't turn over, if they don't leave, employees must know something good's going to happen at the company. So, you know, is that connection clear that like employees know more about the business because they're insiders than we do? And if they're sticking around, there must be something good going on there. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I, I believe so. I, I would be hesitant to ascribe it to the attitudes of millennials in part because you know there was so much else that has changed in the workforce. So yes, they they seem to be willing. They they I say as if I'm not part of this, but they, <laughs> they seem to be willing to or less loyal to their companies. But there's also much fewer reasons to stick around. I mean, their parents' generation had pensions. You know, you stick in a stay right. in a company for 20 years and you're taking care for the rest of your life, and that no longer happens. So there are these these long term aspects of the relationship that have broken down or have. I don't know if broken down is the right word. They, they've changed. And so it's not just that they might be more willing to move. There's also fewer reasons for them to stay. But um, it, it's it's a question that I, I'm wrestling with, Greg. And clearly I'm wrestling with lots of questions and have way too much on my plate, uh, which is a great part of this job. There's no shortage of interesting things. Um, but, but we're actually, uh, with a colleague of mine, we've been discussing, thinking about that as a leading indicator. Like, do we find that, the other side of that, are our employees a leading indicator of trouble? When, when employees leave, does that bode poorly for the firm in the future? Um, 
But again, and, and again, we can tie it back to this idea of ideal turnover. When we see deviations from ideal turnover in one way or another, does that provide insights into what's going to happen next? And I imagine for investors, that kind of information, those kinds of questions will be hugely useful. Oh, absolutely. Well, all these projects to think about, as we discussed before, we're going to pick one and work on one together, I hope. Yeah, I hope um, so. Because I have, I have lots of questions. Uh, the answer, the questions, I'm told the questions are what's important, but then like you have all this work to do, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, so it's, the, it's the finding the extra six hours a day. Yeah. Well, you know, on the issue of intangibles and people and investments in people, um, we all hear a lot about company culture. And, um, and how important culture is to innovative environments and, uh, you know, producing, uh, the kinds of environments that produce good results for the businesses. Um, is there connections to the work you've done and that, you know, investing in people, of course, like these personal expenses that you mentioned earlier, or some of the work you did, does it, does it connect to the culture? Cause culture is another one of these things where we all know companies with great cultures produce great results. You have happy employees, happy customers, and profits, right? That's the connection. But there's no way to measure the culture. Yeah. You know, we don't know, like, oh, they have a good culture. Well, how do you know that? How do you measure that? Where's the data? Do you have any interesting things to say about how to connect all this to culture and how to measure culture? So th there's a, um, a consulting firm in uh, Scandinavia called Voluntis, which has actually been working on doing exactly this. And they've been using it in very interesting ways. So they, are working with um, a large logistics firm that's been highly acquisitive um, on measuring the cultural alignment of target firms management with the management of the acquirer to try to get to this. And I actually wrote a case with them on a German company called Vega, which does piping. They basically, the, the innards of buildings, which is, you know, on the scale of sexy to hideous, like it's, it's, it's to the, to the right side of close here to hideous. Right. <laughs> I mean, nobody dreams of, you know, nobody grows up thinking like, I want to go work for a company that puts pipes into buildings, but they realize that they are, you know, technology is a huge advantage, a huge competitive advantage for them. And in order to get there, they need to recruit people. And the way that they thought they could do this and they've been very successful is to, you know, be much more intentional in thinking about purpose and values of the corporation. And so they've actually developed a measurement system to assess managers alignment with corporate culture, with corporate values and corporate purpose, how closely they live the purpose. Um, and they're um, tying that to incentives. They're actually tying bonuses to managers scores on the, on this ability to live the corporate purpose. So I, wow. you, I, I don't, I, I would be surprised if we saw, you know, see, saw this on the large scale where we have a, a uniform way to measure corporate culture, but at the same time, there there is a lot of creativity in thinking about how this is done. I'll mention just one one other. Um, Thank uh, you. One, one of the large asset managers, you know, their human capital is 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 their asset, right? They've um, they're thinking about how to tie executive compensation to human capital and corporate culture, and right now they're thinking along, you know close to 30 different metrics and trying to figure out how to roll that up into a concise way to judge management to, again, tie it to compensation. Now, would this be just corporate executives or would it be every employee working at the company? So for Vega, for, for the asset manager, they are thinking about it in terms of C-suite executives. For Vega, they, they started with the top two levels of management. 
but the hope is to roll it down because it's a global company. They're gro- they're fast, you know, they're a hundred year old German family company, but their fastest growth markets are Asia and the U.S. And so they need to they're they're working on how to figure out how to implement that there. I think these things are so important because, again, uh, you know, we say it out loud: culture should be good and it should produce better results, but. It's not a lot of evidence of that, not a lot of research that can prove that, and no great ways to actually measure culture. Um, so it gets frustrating if you're someone in a business who is a cheerleader for investing in people and investing in the culture, um, and you go to the CFO and say, you know, hey, I want to spend uh, $10 million on this culture thing. And like, uh, okay, well, how will that affect our earnings? And when will I see the value? And how long will it take? So like, there's this incentive to not do that. Well, so I'm going to push back on that because oh, good. Yes, I love um, it. I, I think it's that we have we've been operating in one world for so long, and we have these heuristics. So, you know, when we think about how we judge corporate managers, it's on profits, right? Like it's on this backward-looking measure, and really, what we care about is how they're preparing their company for the future. And so, but we've been talking about profits for centuries now, and it's just easy to hone in on. Whereas, you know, thinking about measuring culture, thinking about investing in culture, it's just, it's, it's harder in part because we don't have the infrastructure. And a big part of the challenge, which is a challenge across anything within an organization, is that when you make an investment, the costs happen now, the benefits, if they happen, happen in the future. And so the costs are really easy to measure. Not only are the benefits hard to measure, but the farther out those benefits happen, the harder it is to tie them to that original investment. And that's where that frustration comes in. But ultimately, I I, I find that it is not investing in people, investing in culture is not all that dissimilar from buying a new plant. You know, you think that this plant is going to manufacture this product that people are going to want for the next 10 years. And if that plant is manufacturing, oh, I'm just about to give a horrible example. I'm sorry. <laughs> if it's manufacturing my space and it's three years down the road, you know, that plant is not going to pay off as you expect it to be. To. Absolutely. I, I We're at a moment now where that really resonates uh, for those people who've invested in small company growth stocks that are largely making investments like the ones we're talking about in people that have expenses today, but payoffs that are uncertain and way into the future. And uh, the market doesn't like things like that when interest rates go up or, you know, they, they, you know, for whatever reason, in a linear world where you're just simply looking at profits, expenses, and these unknown future potential profits on an asset that's hard to measure, um, those are the companies that got hit the hardest in the last 15 months versus those that bought buildings. Yeah. Um, so I, I think like the market participants or investors or whoever's causing this havoc, I would love it if nobody really cared what quarterly earnings were when you made these smart long-term investments with uncertain payoffs. Um, they call them long duration equities. <laughs> well, you know, and it's it's fascinating because um, I, uh, um, I wrote a case about uh, an organization called Just Capital. Which yes, is, I've worked with them closely for quite a long time. They're, it's a wonderful organization. You know, thinking about you know measuring corporations' non-financial impact, its impact on society. And Martin Whitaker, their CEO, was talking about conversations he's had with companies about how to wrestle with this. And one of the things he said was, you know, there's a CEO who said, if you asked me to not report anything for the next five years, 
I could perform so much better than if you asked me to report on a quarterly basis. Yep. And it, but, but that's the thing. On, on the quarterly basis, we're seeing the costs. It's on the five, the 10-year basis is that we're seeing the, the gains from those costs. Oh, that's so true. Um, so another intangible asset that I think also connects to the people and investments is brand. And I wonder if you've uh, stumbled onto that one at all. Uh, another thing that we all know has a lot of value. And, uh, but as a matter of fact, I, I met, uh, Baruch Lev through another friend of mine, Ramesh Rayo, and they, um, they actually, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I met, I met, I met Baruch Lev through Fangu, but I remember talking to Baruch Lev about Ramesh's research with another guy named Dominique Hansen's. And what he did, what they did was they were looking at companies with strong brands and how much cash they had on a balance sheet. And they showed that companies that had strong brands had more resilient revenue streams during challenging times. So having a strong brand afforded them the opportunity to have less cash on their balance sheet. And since over time markets go up, not down, less cash produced better results. So it was like a way to quantify the value of a brand. But I've really not seen a lot on that. And I wonder if that's something that you stumble onto in your work. Yeah, so th this is definitely above my pay grade, but that does sound fascinating. And it's amazing when you hear something like that and it all makes perfect sense, <laughs> but something I'd never thought of before. That being said, you know, one of the big pushes for these human capital disclosures is that um, at this point, I think it's north of 50% of publicly traded firms in the US report a loss every year. An accounting loss. And it is because, you know, their assets are people and brands and that just doesn't show up. And so when they make investments in these things, it's just expense. So I have this tradition or, you know, we have this tradition on the Q factor called the three Qs. And these are three questions that we ask every guest, no matter what their background or experience or expertise. And uh, one of them is, in what field do you see big data having the biggest positive impact in the world over the next 10 years? And it could be anything, science, manufacturing, investing, philanthropy, global health, climate change, anything you want. Where do you think big data will help the most? I... I'm going to cheat a little here, Greg, and I'm going to say climate change because I think that climate change is going to directly impact every other one of those factors, those industries <laughs> you listed. Um, I think directly, you know, the more data we have around the impact of climate change, the better we'll be able to mitigate it. But the better we'll be able, the capital markets will be at trying to solve this, the better philanthropy will be at trying to figure out how to steer donor dollars, and the better the better health outcomes we'll have because we know that climate change is having significant impact on global health. That makes a lot of sense. Well, then on the flip side, uh, what aspect of the world do you think is the most threatened by big data over the next 10 years? Um, where it's the most dangerous in your mind? Oh man, um, these, I, I should I, I should caveat by saying these are all way outside my area of expertise, but I'll give it a go anyway. Um, I, I think uh, po our political discourse and polarization is is where the biggest threat lies. You know, we as you know, nefarious organizations get more and more information about our 
our behaviors, the easier it is going to be to influence those behaviors. And, you know, we've, we're already seeing this. And for me, that, that's, you know, that and climate change are what I lose sleep over. Yeah. I could, I'm concerned about the two as well. Um, in, in many ways, you know, uh, I've been doing this podcast for, I think about seven years now. And, uh, it's all about talking with people that use data analytics for interesting things. And seven years ago, I would ask the same three questions. And the last question, which has become quite popular now, seven years later is artificial intelligence. Seven years ago, not everyone knew what it is, was, but now I think we all know what it is. So what do you think AI is? Is it our friend or is it our foe? Should we be afraid or excited? Both is, uh, <laughs> so, you know, I think of AI, you know, it's, it's like, it's like asking whether we should be afraid or excited of a hammer or a knife. I, I think it, it all depends on how we use it. And, you know, I, I can give you an example. I, I, I'm, I have a co-author. We're working on a paper right now. We're trying to um, extract information um, from firms, ESG reports, which are very text heavy. So it involves a lot of coding and we, we're, go, we're trying to extract a specific kind of information. And she went to ChatGPT and asked ChatGPT to write uh, some Python code to extract this. And what would have taken us probably two weeks took us about 20 minutes. So when used right, it can be incredibly advantageous and beneficial. Um, but of course, it can be used for, for horrible and awful things as well. I think you know the challenge is that the regulators who need to put barriers around this don't understand the technology sufficiently. And uh, that's where I, I think some really societally beneficial work could go to helping, helping regulators understand what, how we can make this AI a friend. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I had a similar experience. I, uh, in one of the, one of my colleagues and I were working on something and we also needed to write some Python code and use chat GPT and there it was. It was saved us a lot of time. But my best use of ChatGBT was I wrote a love song for my wife, Cindy. And uh, it took about you know three minutes, and it was really great. Uh, I sent it to her. This was uh, a couple months ago when it first came out. And uh, I haven't like put the music to it yet, but it was actually quite good. Well, I was going to ask, is this going to, like, are you going to take us out with you singing us this love song to your wife? Because that would be a great way to end this. I should have done that, actually. I would have thought that. They should have thought that through. But, well, hey, Ethan, I can't thank you enough for doing this with me. I really have enjoyed this. I, I know this is just the beginning of what's going to be a long relationship. I love what you're working on. Um, it's uh, so close to my interests. So I'm looking forward to our follow-up. Thank you for joining us on the Q Factor and spending time with me. Greg, thank you. I can't thank you enough. Yeah, for all your support and your interest. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Ethan Ruin, one of the leading thinkers in the new world of accounting and human capital. Please join me next time for another data-driven conversation. I'm your host, Greg Fisher. Thank you for listening to The Q Factor. Greg Fisher is founder and portfolio manager of Quent Capital, a registered investment advisor. Economic and market views and forecasts stated by Mr. Fisher or Quent Capital are current as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. This presentation is not intended to be a solicitation of any kind. It is for general informational purposes only. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The views of the guests that appear on the Q Factor are their own and may not reflect the views of Mr. Fisher or Quent Capital.